The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more. Insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms. In a sense, Bernie Sanders has already won. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Anna Edgerton, filling in for Kevin Cirilli today. Coming up, we're going to talk about the 2020 presidential election and the debate last night in South Carolina. We'll also talk about the coronavirus and how the U.S. is working to address that expanding threat. And we'll talk about what our panelists are looking forward to in the week to come. I'm Anna Edgerton, filling in for Kevin Cirilli today. With me tonight, we have Adam Hodge. He's a senior vice president at Ariel Investments and a Democratic insider. And we have Lester Munson, a principal at the government relations firm BRG Group, an adjunct faculty member at Johns Hopkins University, also experienced a Republican staffer. So, Adam, let me start with you, if I could, to get us into the 2020 debates. Um, we South Carolina is a very important state for Joe Biden. It's kind of a must-win situation for him. He had a pretty good debate performance last night, followed by a very important endorsement from Jim Clyburn, with whom you used to work very closely. What does that mean for Joe Biden going forward? And does he have what he needs at this point to kind of get his campaign back on the right foot? I I think the biggest takeaway from last night was that Biden picked the best night to have his best debate performance. Uh, And leading into South Carolina on Tuesday, he really needed to show uh, that he he could, could... show that the voters in South Carolina that he had what it took to win the the primary. Um, And then having Jim Clyburn come out and endorse the very next day is kind of a perfect one-two punch heading into Saturday. Uh, You know, Jim Clyburn is uh, the political kingmaker in South Carolina and one of the most prominent national African-American elected officials. And so the, the the key thing I'm looking for is is what is the margin that Jim that uh, Biden ends up uh, winning by? I think it, it looks like he he should win on on Saturday. How does that springboard to the campaign? And then how does he leverage if it's a win uh, to catapult his his campaign and really give him a, a, a boost into Super Tuesday? And it's kind of hard at this point that Super Tuesdays come so close after the South Carolina primary because a lot of people are already, you know, early voting in these Super Tuesday states. So, you know, is it going to be enough momentum for him to kind of make up the lost space in terms of the delegate count with these delegate-rich Super Tuesday states? No, that's absolutely right. I mean, the thing that I think people have to remember is that there's only been 3 percent of the national delegates that have been awarded so far. So we really are still in the early stages of of the, the primary after Saturday, it really kicks into high gear. And so the question is, can Biden both leverage if he is if, if he does win um, what that victory does for his campaign on Super Tuesday? Does he generate resources in, in campaign funding so that he can strengthen his operation and really run a strong ad campaign in the last couple of days before Super Tuesday? Um, that certainly remains to be seen. Um, but that's certainly the the. Um, uh, goal that he has 
set out for himself for the next uh, couple of days. That is an excellent point about the three percent of delegates already awarded, because I think you know we talk so much about momentum and what the race looks like so far, but we're really in the early stages. But what we have to work with so far is a clear front runner in Bernie Sanders. You know, he's leading in delegates, he's leading in the polls, he has strong fundraising. Lester, if I could turn to you, what does that mean for the general election? If we could kind of get ahead of ourselves a little bit and think about a general election with Sanders representing the Democratic Party and President Trump representing the Republican Party. So I don't think there's any doubt that Republicans' most preferred candidate in the general is Bernie Sanders. The president himself is clearly hoping for a a battle between the crazy guy and the socialist, where the president plays the crazy guy. Uh, And I think a lot of Republicans are looking back to 1972 and thinking about George McGovern and thinking that it's possible Trump wins in a landslide of epic proportions. Frankly, I'm not sure how realistic that is. There's there's going to be a bunch of states that the Democrat nominee nominee wins no matter what. And also, uh, there is kind of the 2016 factor of the conventional wisdom is, is out the window these days. No one expected Donald Trump to win in 2016. No one, I don't think honestly expects Bernie Sanders to win in in 2020, but it it doesn't mean it's not going to happen and it's not possible. And there is, we're in a different time and it's hard to predict these days. So with the caveat of there's, there's a big part of this that we just don't know. I think Republicans generally are very excited about having Bernie Sanders as an opponent. And I think what you saw uh, last night from the more centrist, um, members on the stage was a recognition that they that Bernie was the front runner and it, they had no choice Absolutely. but to yeah. take him on, which is something that I quite frankly think a lot of Republicans avoided in the, the 2016 primary. The other thing I just want to go back to on Clyburn's endorsement, I think you also have to look at his number one priority is certainly protecting the House Democratic majority. And I think there's been a number of polls and people certainly uh, have come to some conclusion that Bernie puts those things, those both the House majority and the chances of winning the Senate, in serious jeopardy. And so, if Clyburn's looking at his n- new colleague, Joe Cunningham, a freshman from South Carolina, from the Charleston suburbs, how does uh, whoever the, the nominee help protect that House Democratic majority? And so, that could also have been a factor in in the announcement. Absolutely. Uh, and we've seen that today. from from House Democrats. You know, we had a story out today from my colleague Eric Wasson about just how worried they are about that down ballot impact and what they're doing to kind of insulate themselves from that. And you know, the other consideration, I guess, whether it's Sanders, whoever the nominee might be, is kind of uniting the party behind this person. And right now, the Democratic Party is <laughs> occupies quite a wide range of an ideological spectrum. I think we have some sound from Amy Klobuchar last night talking about exactly that. If we spend the next four months tearing our party apart, we're going to watch Donald Trump spend the next four years tearing our country apart. Which, Lester, to your point, is kind of best case scenario for the president, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. He's uh, he loves this. His I think uh, it's you know, we're going to need a little bit more time to kind of go back and evaluate how the impeachment played out. But I think net net. Right now, it looks like it was a huge win for Trump. He not only survived and is, was not removed, but also he stained his the person most likely to beat him in a general, Joe Biden, to the point where Biden didn't win any of the first three uh, Democrat elections during this primary season. So I, it, it really 
uh, turned to Trump's advantage. It's continuing to do that. He does appear to have a lot of luck on his side. And if Bernie is, in fact, the nominee, that is, that's his dream opponent. I think my, my initial reaction yesterday was that the, the winner of the debate was Trump and the loser were the moderators. But, uh, yeah, Adam, did you want to build no, on I that? Just, the, the thing I, I, I can't help but thinking back to, though, is we can't forget that these primary contests are about fighting for the vision of the party. And I can remember in 2008, a lot of ink was, was spilled. But it was mostly ink still at that <laughs> time and not, 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 not tweets um, about how the fight between Obama and Clinton was dragging on and it was going to cost Democrats a chance to win. And it was a nasty fight between the two of them. It seems so quaint. And it seems so quaint. <laughs> but, the, but there were real honest policy debates about where we should take the country and what that should look like. I think that's what you're seeing now. I think it's actually healthy for the party uh, to to um, jump there, and so we'll see how it uh, how it, it plays out in the next. Uh, yeah, couple, and so I, I agree with Adam, and I disagree with Senator Klobuchar. It's not the the party doesn't tear itself apart when it debates the position of the party. That's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. That's what democracy is about. I think what's going to hurt the Democrats is if they nominate someone who's far to the left, like Bernie Sanders admittedly is. That that's my opinion. Again, we could be wrong. We saw that we were wrong with Donald Trump in 2016. So. Great. Thanks so much. I'm Anna Edgerton. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. We have to work and expand the World Health Organization. Obviously, we have to make sure the CDC, the NIH, our infectious departments are fully funded. This is a global problem. We've got to work with countries all over the world to solve it. I would be on the phone with China and making it clear. We are going to need to be in your country. You have to be open. You have to be clear. We have to know what's going on. But we don't have the organization we need. This is a very serious thing. The, 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 as you see, the stock market's falling apart because gonna, people are really worried and they that. should be. We don't have anybody to respond. I would better coordinate throughout my presidency to be ready for the next pandemic and to prepare for this one. I'm Anna Edgerton filling in for Kevin Cerilli today. That was Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, Michael Bloomberg, and Amy Klobuchar last night at the South Carolina debate speaking about the coronavirus. Now, I should mention that Michael Bloomberg, who's seeking the Democratic presidential nomination, is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg Radio. So I wanted to ask our panelists today, we still have with us Adam Hodge, Senior Vice President at Ariel Investments, and Lester Munson, a principal at government relations firm BGR, um, ask you guys about how the the debate candidates treated the coronavirus, because it's kind of an awkward thing to mention in a political setting. You know, it's a very serious global threat, but, you know, it's something that you would want to know how these people as president would address this. So, Lester, let's start with you. You know, how did you think the candidates handled this question last night? You know, I didn't particularly like uh, Mayor Bloomberg's response, and that's not to say I don't normally like some of the stuff he says, but I thought his response was was probably the most political of the ones that we heard the other candidates were a little more uh, focused on public policy issues and funding and were less um, prone to exaggeration or fear-mongering or anything like that. This is a very serious issue. I do think uh, the candidates uh, as a, in total missed an opportunity to say something constructive about the current president and say, you know what, 
President Trump is on top of things. He's got good people working for him. And I would I would work with the administration right now to make sure we had the most robust response possible. I think that was, real, that was an opportunity for leadership that no one really sees. It's not clear to me, though, that that's the case, because we did have kind of conflicting messages from, you know, the president tweeting about, um, you know, everything's under control. Larry Kudlow saying to buy the dip in the stock market. Um, you had CDC officials sounding a bit more concerned about uh, the, think- the threat facing the country. But I think there's an opportunity for serious politicians to kind of reach beyond the Twitter phrases and go right to the actual response where you've got real pros at HHS and NIH who are on the case. We have the best scientists in the world, and they're all working on this. And our and the U.S. response, having nothing to do necessarily with the political administration, is actually very good. And we've done some good work with WHO. We've even done some good work with China that hasn't been talked about much, where they've been willing to share their data on the virus itself, so we're able to identify it. There have been some good things that happened. I think if you, if you kind of stay Step away from the Twitter machine and be more rational and talk about in a very calm way about the, what the things government is actually doing. That's a much better opportunity to show leadership. Well, and it seemed like there is still some concern even on the Hill. Um, Nancy Pelosi today said that um, she's concerned that there aren't really the health professionals that are in place in the administration that you know that have been let go and haven't been replaced. We also have um, Kevin McCarthy, who um, said that he wasn't really um, – as thrilled with China's response and that he would hope that they would have kind of a better international cooperation. Um, Adam, if I could sh- turn to you, um, how did you think that the debate candidates handled this question? And was there anyone who really stood out as sounding particularly presidential? Because this is the kind of thing that a president could have to face and show leadership in a very divided country. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I think it was a commander in chief test. And one, I think when Joe Biden was able to uh, bring up his experience in the Obama administration, uh, helping to lead the response to the Ebola outbreak. That was one of his strongest moments of, of the debate. And I think he tried to focus on leadership and showing how he would, would govern and how he would that experience prepares him to step in and be president uh, from day one. And that's an effective message because it reinforces the message he's tried to paint from, from the very beginning of his campaign, that he's tested, he can jump in from day one and take over from from uh, Trump. I think the, the question going forward, I mean, Lester's right. It, this is a, it, it's a global pandemic. It should be treated with the level of seriousness that it, it really is. And I think what you saw from um, Senator Schumer and other members in the Hill is trying to um, paint the, the need for real money to try to address the problem. And they, I think they are have legitimate reason to, to express concern about the lack of personnel that's been in the administration, the, the, the number of acting personnel, uh, both within the White House and within uh, HHS, um, really leaves us at a disadvantage in trying to tackle this as, as a, compared to how the operation we had under the Obama administration dealing with Ebola, where you had every uh, facet of the administration working to try to help uh, stop it. You also have acting Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf, who has been before Congress this week as well. Um, Lester, we're kind of at a crucial moment in the U.S. response to the coronavirus. You know, we haven't had as many transmissions here in the United States. There are 15 people, I believe, um, HHS Secretary Azar said today that we're not on one of the cruise ships that was affected. So how do you, you know, what steps does the administration need to take to really kind of halt the spread and make sure that we don't get to kind of the really scary moment where it's getting passed around bet- between communities in the United States? Well, I think it's important, again, 
uh, you know, not being a doctor and not being an epidemiologist or anything like that. So don't take any of my uh, anything I have to say as medical advice. Uh, it's a, I, I'm a political <laughs> hack at best. Um, I think I think it's important to focus on. Uh, the advice of medical professionals. The CDC has done a good job of talking about what people should do and shouldn't do. They say, you know, masks are overrated unless you have a certain kind of mask. It's not really going to help you. You know, there's other things you can do. You can wash your hands. You can be uh, avoid crowds when necessary if it reaches a certain point. So read the things that the CDC produces. Take a look at them. Average folks, I think, are going to be fine. Uh, and then w- the professionals will deal with this in a sensible way. And I do think there's, again, an opportunity for politicians to say, you know what, we're just going to put R's and D's aside. We're going to not argue about stuff that's not central to the issue at hand. And we're going to work together to make sure we have the most robust response possible. The administration sent up uh, a supplemental funding request a couple of days ago for uh, an extra $1.5 billion. There's some other money they're going to add to that for a, more, uh, for a serious response to this issue. I would like to see Congress take that very seriously, look at it hard, make sure that those are the right things to do, and then fund it. Absolutely. And it looks like they could even ask for more money. Uh, no, uh, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer in the Senate had said as much as $8.5 billion. We'll get to more of that in the next se- in the next session. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Anna Edgerton, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Anna Edgerton filling in for Kevin Cirilli today. We still have our excellent panel with us tonight. We have Adam Hodge, who is a experienced Democratic strategist, worked as the former communications director at the Democratic National Committee, also as the former press secretary for House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn. We also have Lester Munson, principal at government relations firm BGR Group and adjunct faculty member at Johns Hopkins University. Also for this segment on the line, we have Dan Flatley. He's one of our Bloomberg reporters on Capitol Hill. Dan, how was the news on the Hill today? Um, Tell us what we learned about coronavirus. So I think uh, it's fair to say that there's uh, there's a little bit of skepticism right now uh, in Congress as to uh, you know whether the Trump administration has this uh, has this uh, virus uh, situation fully under control or 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 uh, whether they are sending mixed messages to you know, not only members of Congress but to the American people. Um, Secretary of Homeland. Um, of HHS, HHS, Alex Azar was here on the Hill today uh, talking to uh, two committees, and he was grilled uh, fairly, uh, uh, fairly deeply by um, by both panels on uh, not only the numbers that, that he's put forward, but uh, how that they how they will respond. And I think that uh, there's a, a, some disagreement as to how this would be. Funded and, and whether the $2.5 billion that the administration has requested 
uh, will be enough. So you've seen uh, Senator Schumer come out with $8.5 billion proposal and uh, even House uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy suggesting that perhaps the administration wasn't uh, wasn't uh, adequately planning for this, and he suggested that maybe $4 billion was needed. So it did sound like we were going to have a meeting happening between a Republican and Democratic staffers from the appropriations committees in both chambers, which would be the ones responsible for, you know, deciding how much money needs to be appropriated, where exactly it should go. Um, is this, is there any concern that the administration will be able to address this and um, to keep this from spreading faster than has been predicted? I think what you've seen this week really uh, is kind of a, an acknowledgement by members of Congress that uh, that this is going to uh, come to the United States, that, they're, that we're going to see an increase in the number of cases here of, of this coronavirus. Um, that's a bit of a change from the last uh, few weeks when um, I think that there was some hope that this would uh, remain overseas, essentially, and, and that, that it would be contained. So the, the line that uh, we really heard a lot yesterday was inevitable, that this will inevitably uh, come to the U.S. and that we will see more cases. And I think that what is most concerning to members of Congress right now is uh, seeing whether the administration has kind of a coordinated approach. So you saw yesterday Senator John Kennedy really grilling um, DHS Secretary, uh, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf on the numbers saying, you know, why aren't your numbers the same as what we're seeing from Health and Human Services? Uh, do you know what uh, the mortality rate is for the coronavirus uh, relative to the, the flu? And uh, Kennedy later suggesting that the administration needed to get on the same page. And I think that's why you see Trump uh, holding a news conference this evening to really reinforce this message that, you know, we have this well in hand. Uh, this is a coordinated effort across all agencies, and we're doing everything that we need to do. I think this is, a, 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 you know, sort of a, a, an important messaging opportunity for the administration that they really haven't um, taken advantage of up to this point, and they've gotten pushback from both Republicans and Democrats in Congress because of that. That's right. And, you know, anytime we have kind of bipartisan agreement on that, that is you know, a signal that it's that it's serious and that it's something um, that you that shouldn't be subject to partisan politics. And just as a reminder, you can catch President Trump's address to the nation regarding coronavirus here on Bloomberg Radio at 630. Dan, thank you so much. Thanks for your reporting and thanks for your insights today. Uh, Lester, if I could ask you, I know that you also worked with um, Senator Bob Corker, who was a member of the um, Senator uh, Bob Corker, and um, you were the chief of staff for Senator Mark Kirk of Illinois, who was a member of the Appropriations Committee. So yes. I imagine that you have um, some experience with these appropriation negotiations. What's going on right now, kind of behind the scenes? What What's being weighed in terms of figuring out how much to put towards addressing this threat? Well, on the one hand, you're going to have real experts, and I'm thinking of people like Anthony Fauci from the National Institutes of Health, who's got incredible credibility across the board with Republicans and Democrats, is going to be going up to the Hill and talking about the particulars of the disease and outlining kind of one of some of the resources that are going to be needed. That's going to be taken very seriously. At the same time, there's going to be some of the usual congressional spending politics, and people are going to be trying to put stuff in there that they think they might need for something else, but it's tangentially related to a coronavirus response. So 
it's going to be it's going to be some good stuff and then some stuff that's a little swampier. Well, it seems like timing is a little sensitive right now because it's you know this isn't like a continuing resolution that you know the stopgap measure that uh, that members of Congress can kind of chew over for for weeks in order to fund the government. This is something that's in response to an imminent threat. You know, does that add added pressure for you know a clean supplemental appropriations bill? Sure, and it's and it gives a, a a much sooner deadline for action. Congress can do that. Congress could pass you know a, a must needed bill every day if it really needed to. But they only the Congress uh, the way it functions these days, it only actually kicks something out to the president when it has to do it. Mm-hmm. So the fact that this virus is a very serious and immediate threat means they're going to have to do something right away. So it'll it'll be very serious negotiations. My sense is it'll end up being a little bigger than it needs to be because people are going to put some stuff in there that they think is is a little opportun that is going to be seen as opportunistic. Mm-hmm. And House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. He likes to remind us that appropriators, when left to their own devices, can work things out amongst themselves. Um, Adam, do you see any kind of urgent uh, concerns for lawmakers on the Hill? Like, what do lawmakers need to do to respond to this when most of the um, action to confront this threat will come from the administration? What can Republicans and Democrats do to kind of help the U.S. speed its response? I I think one of the the points that that Lester was making is is so spot on and you alluded to as well, appropriators do uh, historically have a way to, to work things out and actually get things done. Um, and, and I think I would not be surprised if this, especially with an, an, you know, a, um, a threat on the horizon, uh, that they will, will try to move quickly. I think it's important for members of Congress just to stick to the facts and try to, to be the um, adult in the room um, about the threats that we, that we really face and not try to you know, raise any unnecessary um, alarm bells at the same time, treating it with the the respect that it actually deserves and putting up a front that, that they are going to try to solve this problem together collectively on a bipartisan basis. That's in the best interests of both parties, quite frankly. And the question remains to be seen whether Washington can actually act and move in that way and expeditiously. I mean, this could end up being something unlike anything we've ever really seen. You know, Ebola was a very scary threat. It was a very scary disease, um, but it was pretty focused far away from U.S. shores. You know, this I, I, is something I, that looks like the flu. Right. You know, how do people respond to that? No, I think, I think that's right. I mean, two, two thoughts that come to mind. One, I think Alex Azar, uh, last week I saw an interview where he was talking about people the flu is an actual more imminent threat to Americans' daily lives, and we will f- roughly 50 to 60,000 Americans will die from the flu this year. And so keeping uh, you know, your hands washed and, and staying uh, healthy, staying home from work when you're sick is, is important. Um, but I can't help but remember um, in being in the Obama administration, you know, Trump was on the outside talking about canceling all flights to the U.S. from from Ebola from from Ebola-stricken areas and and uh, you know trying to uh, blockade from the, those countries. It actually, from everything you heard from medical experts, was the last thing that we should should do. Um, and so, uh, the the leadership test for him now that he's in the hot seat, now that he's behind the resolute desk, is whether uh, he changes his tune seeing that. Yeah, Lester, you look like you wanted to weigh yeah. in there as well. You know, I'm reminded of the response uh, after 9-11 happened in New York when, when old Rudy Giuliani, the very competent mayor that, that we remember of New York City, was out there every day talking about the response, talking about what was going on, and really reassured a lot of people that 
uh, city officials and others had things well in hand and things were going to be handled. But he was a master of detail, and he was out there 24-7. President Trump has a high bar to get to in that sense. He needs to be a master of detail, and he needs to, he needs to, to be able to talk about it quickly and often. And that, just as a reminder, people, wash your hands. That's the best thing you can do to, pre- to prevent the spread of disease. Um, download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com. Or- this is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Anna Edgerton filling in for Kevin Cerulli today, and I'm so disappointed this is our last few minutes with our excellent panel. I feel like I want to pick y'all's brains uh, you know, for the rest of the evening. We have with us Adam Hodge. He's a Democratic strategist with experience at the Democratic National Committee and with uh, House Major- Majority Whip J- Jim Clyburn. We also have Lester Munson, a principal at government relations firm BGR Group and an adjunct faculty member at Johns Hopkins University. So in this segment, I would like to ask you guys what's on your radar? What are you looking forward to for the rest of this week for next week adam let's start with you yeah i mean it's hard to not look uh, at south carolina and the uh the results on super tuesday uh i think in the super tuesday just parsing out a little bit i'm really looking for at what bernie's margin in, in california ends up being i think it, it is almost assured that he'll win that that state um you know and so how does he balance you know what was a, a rougher debate performance last night how does that affect uh his margin of victory there um and wh- how, what's his share of the african-american and latino turnout in california versus the other states around the country uh, it, it's a really really big big question california is really big in terms of delegate count but it doesn't really look like the states that are important for the electoral college but right. does, does that mean anything at this point or no i don't think that that necessarily means anything. I mean, this is ultimately a race to getting 51% of the pledged delegates. And so what Bernie's margin there in California, which has the most amount of delegates, will matter and could shake up the race if he's not able to to amount a lead. Because then there's a bunch of other states after Super Tuesday in the South that may give Biden an opportunity or, or Bloomberg or, who or someone else to really run the table. Absolutely. This is my this will be my first election voting in Maryland. So I was just looking up the Maryland primary rules to see whether or not I can uh, I can vote in the primary. Um, Lester, what about you? What are you looking forward to next week? So I'm watching the news out of Iran as it relates to coronavirus. As we know, you know, coronavirus is in all the headlines and it's now becoming a global problem. But a couple of days ago, we had news out of Iran that the government appeared to be not disclosing what was really happening in the country with coronavirus. There were a lot of deaths in the holy city of Qom, which is very important in the Shia religion. The Iranian government was already on shaky ground because it had accidentally shot down this plane full of students in the wake of the uh, Qasem Soleimani killing by the U.S. So there's there's a real interesting political dynamic to all this in Iran in particular, and that government could be in a little bit of trouble. And the deputy health minister who you know, was out there speaking about the coronavirus, talking about this threat, now wiping his brow, it. coughing, yeah. it was on TV that night, and then ends up coming down with coronavirus. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 alarming. You don't want to overstate it, but it's it could have a that's a place where it could have a real immediate political impact. So it bears watching. So this week, I think I'm going to be looking forward to uh, Secretary Pompeo testifying on Capitol Hill on Friday. It'll be his first appearance on the Hill for a while for a while since his last briefing, a closed door briefing that he gave to the Senate on Iran, which was not well received. There was um, you know even some Republican senators like Mike Lee and Rand Paul who were very upset with 
with the way that he kind of presented the administration's uh, decision-making process with Iran. So it'll be really interesting to see you know, how he's received on Capitol Hill. Uh, Lester, did you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, members of Congress really like it when people defer to them and honor them for their position. And I, I suspect Article that, one, man. you yeah, got to respect right. the Article yeah, one. Article one, it's the first one. Uh, and and you I would think Mike Pompeo is a former member of Congress. Yeah, he doesn't. <laughs> would. He, yeah, he might not have gotten that memo. He yeah. really, uh, he seems, he's more focused on Article two now, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and, you know, so he's probably going to be talking about the Middle East. We do have a Taliban, uh, a nonviolent agreement with the Taliban that ends on Saturday. So if that holds through the weekend, we could see um, you know, movement towards a peace agreement with the Taliban, which would be huge. It would be a huge moment for the president and it would be a time for him to kind of point to fulfilling one of his campaign promises. Adam, is that how important is that for the president going into his reelection campaign? I think it's especially important given the other actions he's taken in the Middle East to actually increase troops in Saudi and a bunch of other uh, countries. And so um, right now he has a huge target on his back as that is a broken promise that he made in the, in the primary. If he's successful and it's if it's a real deal, the devil's always in the details of these, these agreements, um, it, it will certainly be an opportunity for him to talk about a promises made, promises kept. We did get a little bit of discussion about foreign policy at the debate last night. There were some questions about the terrible humanitarian crisis in Syria. Um, Adam, how did you evaluate the response from the candidates about foreign policy and about how they would position U.S. troops abroad or respond to um, some of the uncertainty in the Middle East? It's, there seemed to be some consensus amongst members of uh, the folks on the, on the debate stage just about how uh, Americans, what uh, foreign policy and how, um, you know, f- front forward we should be on some of the, those issues. Um, but I think it also gave Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden a chance to contrast different styles about how they would actually uh, govern. And, they, and that sets up the key debate with um, amongst Democratic voters is what kind of leader and what kind of a commander in chief do you want representing the Democratic Party? And we do seem to have a bit of a shift within the American public where you know, certainly a lot of support for the troops and everyone wants to make sure that they're being supportive of service members, but really a kind of realization that the United States should not be involved in these wars that drag on for 18, 19 years. And if you're going to get involved in these kind of conflicts, it has to come with an exit strategy. Lester, how much do you see this factoring into the 2020 campaign? Is there... Um, you know, a shift in the electorate that candidates will have to respond to, or is this really driven by the candidates themselves? Well, I, you know, you could talk for a long time about this. Uh, the last four presidents who were elected all campaigned on the more isolationist side than their opponent, and they won. But then once in office, That's became, an excellent point. Yeah. Yeah, became much more internationalist, with the possible exception of President Trump. He's really kind of held to a let's pull back to the U.S. kind of approach. I think it's very risky for him, particularly in Afghanistan. The devil is in the details. If this agreement looks weak, he is going to get a ton of of opposition from his own right wing. It's going to divide the party. And I was a little concerned in the debate from some of the things Senator Sanders and Senator Warren said, which I thought were, were frankly as isolationist as some of the stuff that President Trump has been saying. And I don't like it from either one of them. Well, and you, you see one thing that almost every candidate on the stage last night emphasized was that it's not just enough to be strong militarily. You also have to build up alliances, making sure you're participating with these multilateral 
institutions and agreements and organizations that can address something like the coronavirus. You know, this is when you really need to pull together as an international community to respond to what we really see as a global threat. Is Adam, do you see any one of the Democratic candidates as really the strongest on foreign policy and having kind of the, the best approach for this moment that we find ourselves in? I think it's it's certainly been an opportunity for, for Joe Biden to uh, give his, you know, his, his best uh, you know, approach, but it's also given uh, Mayor Pete a chance to talk about his experience, you know, serving in a war zone. And I think last night that was one of his strongest moments where he was able to talk about his experience as an intelligence officer. And he, you, you could tell that he had a little bit more comfort on those issues as opposed to some of the other issues. Yeah, it'll be interesting, you know, if Senator Sanders does end up being the nominee of the Democratic Party, is he going to pick someone who's a little more pro-engagement in the world, like a like a Biden or a Buttigieg as his running mate? Is he is he going to reach out to that part of the party? I think that'll be a big question for him. And if he does, what does that do to his grassroots support? I mean, exactly. you know, he has very passionate following who seems to be with him until the very end. But, you know, if he were to pair with Buttigieg, that would seem like a kind of hard ticket for some of them to swallow. Um any yeah. other reflections coming up? Go ahead. No, Adam. I was just going to say, that, and that just uh, it's it's always fun to to play the the uh, beep stakes, um, <laughs> but I think it's going to be hard for um, the since there's in all likelihood likely to be a, a white male leading the ticket that there that there's going to have to be a diverse vice presidential candidate to really kind of hold the the party together. We cannot forget that African American voters, but just specifically African-American women, are the most engaged and were the, the, the majority makers when Democrats took back the House in 2018. Whoever the nominee is, they have to find a way to galvanize that community. And one thing that Joe Biden said last night was he's going to pour a black woman to the Supreme Court. That raised some eyebrows. That was impressive. Absolutely. And that's something we'll definitely be watching for in South Carolina on Saturday. Thank you so much to our panelists. Y'all are great. I hope we can continue this conversation. Um, just as a reminder, you can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. And tonight, stay tuned right here to Bloomberg Radio. We will bring you President Trump's news conference with CDC and other officials. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.